Well, I'll read Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, and we'll walk through all of these verses today. Beginning in verse 16, our Lord says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This is the word of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do thank you so very much for the scriptures and for your word. And we plead with you now to send your spirit to do a work. We need your help. I personally need your help here. Father, we want you to do the effectual work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, by way of introduction, I want you to think with me for a second about what I'm calling several evangelical curse words. And uh, we can continue to add to this list as they come to your mind. But these are a few that came to, to my mind very quickly when I began to think about words that if you say in general, typical, quote, evangelical company, you're going to get looked at. You might get a double take or you know, some people might begin to scoot away from you as you, um, especially if you begin to elaborate on what you mean. But the word law in many Christian circles is a bad word. Usually that concept um, that you would mention the law or a law or structure or authority and that it would be rejected or um, opposed, we would usually expect to only find that in the alleys and in the dark places of crime-ridden city streets where people hate the law and want nothing to do with authority and want their own way no matter, no matter what. But if you get around some professing Christians and you begin to talk about the law, they look at you like you've just cussed them. Yeah. Beneath that, we could also add the word Sabbath, especially with a capital S. If you use that word, you, you might as well be saying something about someone's mother. They look at you like you're speaking nonsense. They are immediately offended. They see it as, as you attacking them personally. The words heresy or heretic have become evangelical curse words. After all, there is no longer anything, there's no longer such a thing as heresy. 
Anything anybody believes goes, and we were not allowed to challenge any belief. And if there is no heresy, then there can't be any heretics. That's just their opinion. That's just their interpretation. Who is who are we to, to challenge someone else's beliefs? Another one is the word tradition. Tradition is an awful word to be spoken in company of many modern, again, quote, evangelicals. It's actually popular now for a church to advertise themselves as non-traditional or anti-tradition. That's how they advertise themselves. You, you should come and check out our church. Don't worry, it's not like what you're used to. It's different than everything else. That's, that's supposed to be the, 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 the draw, is that the church is not like the church has always been. It's sort of like advertising something as gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, free-range. You just slap that label on any mystery meat, and you can almost hear the yuppies running. It doesn't matter what it is. It has this label. And it's the same thing when you begin to advertise a church as non-traditional or anti-traditional or contemporary, as if that is somehow opposed to tradition. You can almost hear the people come running from miles around every week at the same time to sit and stand and sing and sit and listen and stand and sing and go home and eat. Week after week after week, they do the same thing all the time, and yet they're so opposed, so offended by the word tradition. Now, and, and they'll, those same types will usually be equally offended if you attempt to point out to them that other such traditions, like Christmas, like Easter, are also... Just traditions, extra-biblical traditions. They are offended. You mention that to the same people that are anti-tradition. You mention that and they look at you like you just spilled their latte. They're upset. How dare you say that my tradition is a tradition while I'm equally offended that you continue your tradition? The question is, is there something inherently wrong with traditions? Well, the word tradition, the thought of traditions, is Christianity. Do people want to get away from the tradition and run back to biblical Christianity? And we have, would have to ask, is biblical Christianity inherently anti-tradition? Does having traditions make you, in modern lingo, a Pharisee? That, that is usually the connection. If you have traditions... And you hold strongly to traditions, you're a Pharisee. And if you expect someone else to hold strongly to those traditions, you're a Pharisee. But does that make you a Pharisee? I would say no. I would say, based on Scripture, Christianity is inherently traditional. No tradition, no Christianity. Jesus said, do these things until I come back. We do those things until he comes back. And they're passed down from generation to generation. All of the things that the Bible gives us to do as Christians, especially when we gather as worship, these are, by definition, traditions. No tradition, no Christianity. See, the problem with the Pharisees and what we're going to see today was not that they had traditions, but 
that they held to their traditions, they held to their practices, but they had forgot, forgotten the God who had given these traditions, had given them the institutions. So, I want to open up these verses. I'm going to use the same outline I've been using because all of these, these woes against the Pharisees follow sort of the same pattern. And so we can use the same structural outline. And we'll begin with the opening denunciation in verse 16. The first words are now familiar to us. Woe to you. Woe to you. Now, flip backwards in your Bibles just a few chapters to Matthew chapter 11. And we can see, uh, again, another of the various sides or another flavor of this word, another... um, Text that helps us to get a grasp of what this word means, woe to you, what this phrase means when our Lord uses it. In verse 20, it says, Then he began to denounce. And that's where I got the title of the opening denunciation. When he uses this phrase, he is denouncing. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And here it gives the quotation. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, here's sort of the, the weight of this woe. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and for Sidon than for you. Now Tyre and Sidon were historically known for their wickedness and their evil and their sensuality. And so Jesus pronounces these woes on them and he says, because you had clear, direct, obvious revelation of who I was, most of my mighty works were done there. You were able to see it with your eyes and yet you still hardened your heart and would not repent It's going to be worse on Judgment Day for you than for those evil, wicked Sidonites and and people of Tyre who didn't get to see the same things. How awful is this phrase, woe to you? And how awful will it be on that day for the people of Chorazin, the people of Tyre, or the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and then for people in our own day who have been given clear, obvious, compelling, moving information, or at least have heard the word of God and yet have chosen not to repent. They receive the same denunciation. Woe to you. It will be awful. The Pharisees were in the same boat. We've seen many times how they saw, they knew, they were aware, it was clear that Jesus was from God, that He fulfilled every prophecy, and yet they would not repent. And so He gives them the same denunciation, woe to you, and He gives it over and over again. But then we have a new phrase. In verse 13, we read, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Here we have this phrase, woe to you, blind guides. Blind guides. The Pharisees were guides. That was their job. They were to be uh, instructors, advisors, leaders. Jesus himself had said, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They held the position of teacher. They were to guide the people in spiritual matters. But he calls them blind 
guides, unable to see. I think it's fairly obvious. He's not talking about physical blindness. He's referring to spiritual blindness. And notice in verse 17, you blind fools. In verse 19, you blind men. There is an emphasis in these verses on the blindness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their inability to see, to discern, to properly view some spiritual matter. And so he denounces them as spiritually blind Incapable leaders. When we talk about spiritual blindness, we're typically referring to the, the, the mind's ability to comprehend and the heart's ability to receive, to discern spiritual truth. There's something, some truth, that for some was obvious and they could see it. But for these men, there's something they're not seeing. It's not before their eyes spiritually. It's, it's not... Uh, they're not able to view it properly. Secondly, then, we see this specific admonition. Beginning at the end of verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides who say. Remember, they are guides. It is their job to teach. It is their job to lead, to sit on Moses' seat and to uh, teach from the Scriptures. And it was the job of the people to do and observe whatever they were told from that vantage point or from that that position. And so here the specific admonition is they were saying, they were teaching, they were giving some kind of information that was false. Woe to you, blind guides who say, and here's what they were saying, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Worthless. It's a useless, useless vow. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. A useless, pointless vow. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. The temple was the place where God had instituted His worship. That was the place He had chosen to make His name dwell there. Now this second temple was different from the first temple, but it was still the place where God had determined for, the, for His worship to take place. It was a sacred place of worship instituted by God. The altar was a piece of furniture there in the temple where they would offer their sacrifices. Again, instituted by God. God had said... Here's what the altar will look like. Here's what it will be made of. Here's where it will be positioned. Both of these things, instituted by God, have been reduced into insignificance. If you swear by the temple, it means nothing. If you swear by the altar, it means nothing. But, at the very same time, you've got these ideas of gold and of gifts. More than likely, this is a reference to monies given, profits, sacrifices that would be brought into the temple as an act of worship. These were the what we, we might call the, the human acts that they brought to worship. These things, 
have been held in high regard. They're actually being exalted. And the gold of the temple, the gifts brought to the altar, most of them benefited those who worked in the temple. The money's put in the treasury, the Corbin money's promised, the food sacrifices and offerings, the priests would get parts of that, and so these things would benefit those who worked in the temple. Now, to swear by the gold of the temple, to swear by the gift on the altar that may have been literally calling these things to witness the vow, like we would say, I swear by, I swear on my mother's grave. We, we, we try to think of the, 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 the weightiest, most serious thing we can think of. Or it might have been that they were vowing to give treasures, gold, to put into the treasury, vowing to give sacrifices or Corbin monies. They made these vows. And these things were held in high regard while the institutions of God were reduced to nothing. And so look at Christ's reply in both of these. He answers with these rhetorical questions. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? For which is greater, the altar or the gift or the, the, uh, the gift or the altar that has made the gift sacred? Rhetorical questions assume the, an opposite assertion. So what he's saying with these questions is the temple is greater than than the gold in the temple. The altar is greater than the gift on the altar. And they knew that. Why else would they say, if anyone swears by the gold of the temple? Why not just say, if anyone swears by gold? If anyone swears by gift? They knew it was important. That's why they added that. The gold of the temple, the gift on the altars, they knew it. But they had switched the order around in their teaching. Jesus is teaching this. The temple is what makes the gold sacred. The altar is what makes the gift sacred. Why is that? Why does the temple have that power? Why does the altar have that power? The answer is because God instituted those things. That's important. Remember that. God instituted temple worship. God instituted altar sacrifices. He sanctified them. These men had forgotten that or at least had had put that out of their minds in their teaching. And so this is this teaching is what is proven in verses 20 to 22. Notice how he continues. So whoever swears by the altar. Now, that's not what they were doing. Remember, they were swearing by the gift that is on the altar. That shows us that what he's about to say is not a one-to-one contrast. He's not saying, you've done this, now do this, or you are wrong and here's what's right. He has just given the teaching in those two rhetorical questions. The temple is sacred, the altar is sacred, and then he's going to enforce that. What does that mean? Then whoever swears by the altar... Swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Which would have been a reference to God whose presence uh, would, was, was established there in the temple worship. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Again a reference to God. Now why is this true? Why is it? 
That if a person swears by the altar, he swears by it and everything on it. If he swears by the temple, he swears by it and God. If he swears by heaven, then he's also swearing by the throne of God and by God himself. Why is that true? It's because all swearing or vowing with regard to sacred things, and these were parts of their worship, they all call into account... The God who had made these things sacred. In Leviticus 22, there's this phrase used, which is used elsewhere. But he was talking about the, the, the things of the temple worship. And he said, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. It all culminates in that. Why do this? Why is it important? I am the Lord who sanctifies these things. It is God... Not man who determines what is to be sacred. And so it is men who are to obey God. When he makes something sacred, we obey him first by sanctifying God in our hearts. Once we've done that, the second one will follow, sanctifying that which God has sanctified. But each of those in their own order. That order which the Pharisees had switched. God establishes the relationship between himself and that which is sanctified. And we can't break it. We can't come along and say, well, I want to pry God away from that which he has sanctified. Now, in order to apply this, I want to sort of clarify their root sin. What was the root problem? And I've written it this way. Their failure to understand the relationship between God and His ordinances had led them to make a false distinction between God and His ordinances. Or we could even use the phrase separation of or from. Their failure to understand the relationship between a holy God and his holy ordinances had led them to create a separation between a holy God and his holy ordinances. See, we have to understand that there are two categories when it comes to holy things. There is that which is inherently holy and that which is derivatively holy. Last Lord's Day night we talked about that which is inherently holy. Only God is in that category. His majestic holiness is what we, we call it. Because He is God, He is holy. After that comes His separation from sin. But just in His being, just by the fact that He is Creator and everything else is creation, He is inherently holy. But there is also that which is derivatively holy. Things that God from His inherent holiness, makes holy. So let me describe this process. And as I describe it, you'll, you'll, you'll see the relationship or the familiarity uh, with the Scriptures and the story of the, the Israelite people. You have first God who is holy. In and of Himself, completely independent of all things, He is holy, ah, say, in Himself, holy, God will come along from time to time and He will select out of the common, out of the ordinary, out of creation, 
certain things, certain people, certain times, seasons, years, and He makes them holy. He sanctifies them. It might be gold that we dig up out of the ground. It might be tanned ram skins and goat skins. It might be blue and purple yarn and fine twined linen. These things that are just common things in creation. They're just things God made. But he says, I'll have that and that and that. And I'll have that tribe and I'll have that mountain. And he makes these things holy. Because he sanctifies them, they are then holy. But then men will come along, and it's not, not terribly long until they begin to take the things God has made holy, and they exalt them over God himself. They exalt, this is what Paul says in Romans, they worship the creature rather than the creator. They exalt that which is derivatively holy as if it were inherently holy. They make the thing as if it were holy in and of itself. And if that's the case in our hearts and our minds, then we have no more need for that which is inherently holy. And that's what these men were doing. Consider the illustration of a space shuttle. A space shuttle has usually two big rocket boosters that lift it up into the sky. Well, once it gets to where it needs to go up into the sky, those rocket boosters fall away. And the shuttle, which carries the precious cargo, will continue out on into its space Mission. Now, those rocket boosters, by themselves, they're not worth all. I mean, I'm sure they are monetarily worth a lot, but they don't serve very much of a purpose. If you just shot them off, they would shoot up and fall down. But if you attach them to that space shuttle with its precious cargo, it lifts humans into outer space. Was the same thing with God, that which is Him who is inherently holy, and the things which are derivatively holy. Those secondary things, by themselves, they're worthless. They have no value. Gold, ram skins, purple yarn, what value does that have in comparison to God? But when you put them in their proper relationship to God, they lift men into the heavenlies to commune with God in worship. They are the things which He has ordained for us to come along and use to worship Him. He makes them holy. And their sin was they had confused these categories. That which was inherently holy, God, has been set aside. And those other things which are derivatively holy, we're not going to say that there was something sinful about the gold of the temple. God had commanded those things to be done. There was nothing sinful about the gifts on the altar. God had prescribed and commanded gifts to be put there. The thing was they were lifting those gifts and that gold above that which um, God had made sacred. And I do believe there we might have actually three levels. There's God and then he makes the altar sacred and then they put the gift on the altar. So they were actually taking the third tier holy things and exalting them above the second tier holy things. And I believe in doing so lifting them above the God who had instituted those worship practices. Now, we do this, we can commit this same sin in two different ways. First, by failing to sanctify God in His ordinances first. Sanctify God 
in His ordinances, or secondly, by failing to sanctify the ordinances unto God. Now, if that's confusing, we'll, we'll, I'll explain a little as we go along. But I believe that this is exactly the problem that is addressed in the third commandment. God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And we, we take that and we take it to mean, well, don't say God and not mean it. I do think that is a part of it. But more specifically than that, the point of that commandment is, He has put His name on some things. And He has put His name on those things. And that very truth should compel us to treat them as if they've got God's name on them. And if we've sanctified God in our hearts first, then we come to those things with God's name on them, then we will treat them as holy, but secondarily holy because they have God's name on them. Consider the sins of Nadab and Abihu coming to worship God. They brought fire. They brought incense. That was a part of the prescribed worship. But the problem was they brought strange fire. They did not consecrate the specifics of what God had instituted. And, and later, in that, after God kills them, remember he says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. They didn't say anything about God. They just carried out the practice wrongly. And he said, You're not sanctifying me because you're not sanctifying my ordinance. The same thing was happening in Malachi chapter 1, which we're going to look at this afternoon. They were worshiping. They were bringing their sacrifices and their offerings. But they were bringing lame and blind and weak and, and sickly animals. And they thought that that was okay. Well, we'll just bring this. He said, you've got a, a, a fine lamb there or goat or whatever. You've got perfect animals, but then you bring whatever's crippled and lame. Right. You've not sanctified God in your heart. You're doing the ordinance but because you've not sanctified God in your heart, you're no longer sanctifying the ordinance in your heart. Simon the magician appears to be converted. But then whenever he sees the power of God, he thinks, well, I can buy that. He thinks it's just something earthly, something common. No, this is the power of God. You can't buy this. Let your gold and your silver perish with you. They failed to sanctify God's ordinances, the things that God had given and thus they were failing to sanctify God at the same time. And, the, and these are related, His ordinances and Himself. The Pharisees had lost sight of that. They had failed to understand that relationship between God and His ordinances. And therefore they had made a false distinction. And so we can take the gold. We can take the altar. We can do whatever, whatever we want to with these ordinances because we're not sanctifying God in our hearts with those ordinances. We've separated them. And so we see, I think from this text, that the one who holds very strongly to God-given ordinances and carries them out with diligence and devotion from the heart and longs to compel other men to do the same because God is worthy, that's not a Pharisee. One who carries out traditions like that, that's not a Pharisee. You see, the Pharisee is the one who also has his traditions. He also has, we could even be specific and say, his particulars of worship. He's got things he's doing every, every Sunday, every week, every year. He's got his own traditions. But when he carries them out, he does not in his heart and his mind draw the proper correlation between what he's doing and the God who he's worshiping. And that leads to people saying, you should come check out our band. 
Or we like to worship this way. We like this kind of music or that kind of music or this or that. All of these things, you can tell you have not considered the God who has commanded you to worship. Some things may be okay. Some things may be sinful. The question is, what does God think? Worship's not about us. It's about what God thinks. I believe when you begin to consider the majestic holiness of God, like we saw last week, our attitude towards worship changes. We don't think, well, that's the kind of music I like everywhere else, and so I'm going to do that same kind of music in worship to God. Again, I'm not pinpointing a specific genre. I'm just saying you can't separate these things. The Pharisee is the one who separates them. He has his traditions, but he doesn't consecrate God in his heart in his traditions. So the question is, do you do this? Are you a Pharisee in this regard? Now we are in the church age. We're no longer worshiping in a temple. We no longer offer sacrifices on an altar. But we do have the same temptation. We have the same tendencies. To put it specifically, are there ordinances of the church that you practice or participate in that you treat as if they were sacred in themselves? Ah, say. Are we comfortable enough with using that? Do we, we all remember what that means? I can say, ah, say. Are there ordinances of the church that you practice or participate in that you treat as if they were sacred in themselves? Or, here's the other side of the same coin, are there ordinances that you practice or participate in where you devote to them less reverence than they deserve? One of these responses or one of these actions exalts the ordinance. The other reduces the ordinance. One of them tears God's name off of it. The other one flips it over so you can't see God's name and you're not reminded that this is something that God has put His name on. So consider several categories and I'll walk through these. Think about the church as an institution. The church as an institution do you give the church as an institution more honor than it deserves? Or do you, do you give it honor in and of itself? Do you think, are you under the impression that simply because we've gotten together, that that very fact obligates God to do something, to bless us, to, to keep us safe, to protect us, that the very fact that we have agreed to gather here, that that means something. People are probably gathered other places for other things. Some would say the fact that we're meeting in a house, we've, we've finally reached the pinnacle of New Testament worship. You know, you're not doing it right unless you're worshiping in a house. My typical understanding, I usually keep this in my mind, but there are no such thing as house churches. There are churches who meet in houses but there's no such thing as a house church. They're just churches. And a lot of people are under the impression, well, we meet in a house. Therefore, we're doing it right, and God has to bless because we're meeting in a house, not in your big, fancy buildings. You meet in your big, fancy buildings, God's not going to do anything there. Or perhaps you give too little honor to the church as an institution. In your heart and in your mind, you don't think about 
the fact that we've gathered as an institution by God. God has commanded us to worship. You don't remember that the scriptures, I think, are clear. That when we gather, whether we're in a house or we're somewhere else, the holy angels of heaven yes. watch. They want to see what we're doing. They want to. They, they don't understand it. That God would take out of this mass of depraved humanity some, and then they would, they would gather and worship Him. Do you think about that when the church gathers? That this is not just a meeting of people. This is a meeting of saints, blood-bought believers. A meeting of also holy angels who watch, were gathered with that, what the author of the Hebrews calls the assembly of the firstborn meeting in heaven to join in the worship service that they have continually happening. We do that. Do you think about that when you think about the church? Do you think too much of it apart from God? Or do you give it too little honor in light of God? You see how it goes both ways. If you get that relationship, you misunderstand the relationship between God and His ordinances. Or how about the specific time of worship that we have here? Do you think that just because we've decided to spend a little bit of time on a call to worship and then we sing and then we or we pray and then we sing and the, the various aspects of our worship time that just because we're doing those things that God is obligated to bless them. Now I think in Scripture we see a pattern where God speaks and His people respond in worship. And so we try to sort of use that as the order of our worship service. God gets the first say and then we respond and then God gets the say and we respond. We sort of go back and forth. But just because we're following that doesn't mean God is saying, well, I've got some Christians over here that are worshiping. I guess I have to go give them something or bless them with my presence. Do you give too much honor to the thing itself apart from God? Or do you consider it a small thing. You give it too little honor in your heart and in your mind as an act of service to God. The fact that we get to open up the Scriptures, the very words of God, and we, we read them and we sing them and we spend time as a body worshiping. Again, the holy angels watch our worship services. Do you think about that in your heart and your mind when you're driving to church? When you're picking your seat, when you're dressing yourself, are you thinking, I cannot believe I am about to go into what would be the uh, perhaps paralleled, I, should, I could say, to the old covenant, holy place, the meeting of God with His people. I'm about to go into that and worship with the people of God. Do you consider it? Apart from God, it means nothing. But because God has ordained it, this is sacred time. The songs we sing, do you give them too much honor? As if they themselves, apart from God, have some sort of inherent holiness. You know, we, we sing the psalms. And a lot of churches, they've never sang a psalm. They, they wouldn't know what to do. We, there was a, a, a time when we had never sang a psalm. And so now we sing the psalms. The very fact that we sing the psalms, is that somehow 
obligating God to bless our songs, to, to give us grace through our singing? Are these songs that we sing special apart from God's work? The hymns that we sing, we can take pride in that. We sing the old stuff. We don't sing the new stuff, we sing the old stuff. Is the old stuff worth anything apart from the God who gave the doctrines that are contained in the old hymns? They're worth nothing. At the very same time, maybe you give too little honor to the thing in your heart and in your mind. And so we sing the Psalms. And your, at your mind if you're, or your thought process is, well, i got to sing another one of these songs that are sort of hard to put together in my brain. And so it's, this is just one of those funny singing times. We sing the hymns. Well, I like, we like singing the hymns because they're the old stuff. They're the ones that I know very well. And you give it no honor. Not remembering, again, when you sing the Psalms, you're singing the words of God. David, King David, wrote them, inspired of the Holy Spirit. The people of Israel sang them. The early church sang them. The church throughout the ages has sang the Psalms. And then we get to, imagine it, we get to put the words of God on our lips and sing them back to Him. Do you think about that when you're singing? I could say the same thing for the hymns. Do you think about it? The, the doctrines. We, we want not just old for old, but old for, for substance. Doctrines and biblical teaching contained in the hymns of the faith. Do you think about the words that you're singing? The faith once for all delivered to the saints that has been put into poetic language. And so we sing in Christ alone. My hope is found. Behold Him there, but before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Do you think about that? You see, you, you can give it too much honor and say, well, because we're doing it, God must bless. Or you can give it very little honor and say, well, I'm just doing it because this is what we do. You separate God from His ordinances. Or the preaching of the Word of God. Some people give too much honor for the thing itself apart from God. And so as long as somebody gives lip service to expositional preaching, and as long as he walks through the verses and gives you know a little bit of a commentary, makes some attempt to stay within the context, that God's obligated to bless. He's obligated to move. And so we exalt things like expository preaching. Above the God who we hope speaks during that time. In the same way, we might give too little honor to the thing itself in our hearts and our minds. We don't think about this. That when a man, that the body of Christ has said, we believe, based on a united spirit within us, that God has set apart that man for the work of preaching the word. And then that man stands, having spent his week studying the scriptures, praying over the scriptures, praying for the people who will hear the scriptures, praying through the specific points and applications in with regard to the people he's going to hear. And when he opens up the scriptures and expounds them, gives the meaning, gives the, the doctrine, and then applies that word to the people that God has entrusted to His care, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, addresses His people. 
Do you think that during preaching time? That's terrifying to a preacher. It should be. It, 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 it is anything but ego boosting. It is everything ego reducing because there is nothing humanly to offer. But do we think about that? I try to remember that and make a conscious effort to, to, to keep that in mind as I preach. But do you think about that when you listen? Is it just Bible lesson time? Is it just pastor's opinion time or whoever's preaching opinion time? Or do we realize this is the way Jesus Christ has determined to walk with his people and walk in his churches until he returns? You can give it too much honor for the thing itself or you can give too little honor for the thing in service to God. We can consider the local church as a body. Give too much honor to the thing itself as if it had some inherent value apart from God. And we could say, yeah, we're, we got a church, technically, Alexander County, right now, abroad. Yeah, we're the only Reformed church over there. There are no, no Reformed churches over there. So, I mean, if we're going to be over there... Just because we're there and because we are who we are and we say what we say, we have sort of a diversity of backgrounds. We've all come together and some people are gifted here and some people are gifted there. And we have sort of similar beliefs that are a lot of times different than those around us. Just because of all those facts, God is going to swoop in and bring revival because we happen to show up. Or maybe you give it too little honor. Not remembering that when we gather with these people and we look our church family in the eyeballs, these are blood-bought saints. Jesus Christ, I should start with the Father, chose them for salvation in eternity. He wrote their names down. Son, here are their names. I want you to go get them. I want you to pay for their sins. Redeem them out of humanity. Pay for their sins. And then I'm going to get... These, these couple and these couple and this family and that family, I'm going to put them together with all of their differences and they're going to act as body parts. And when they get together, they are a representation of the mystical body of Christ. You think about that when we get together. Or is it just, I'm going to see the people I see weekly. When you have conversations, is, is the conversation thought of as, this is a body part, nurturing another body part. This, we're, we're building one another up. This is Christ strengthening his body. It's, it's, a, it's a lofty thing. But not in and of itself. It's lofty because God has made it lofty. Or think about the Lord's Day. Some people give it too much honor. As if it were holy in and of itself. You see people all the time who would give no... Won't even give lip service to worship... But, well, it's Sunday, and there are just some things we don't do on Sunday. Or we, we wear our Sunday clothes on Sunday. We, we do certain things on Sunday because it's Sunday. Or even saints who think, well, we worship on the Lord's Day. We have a particular conviction about the Lord's Day. And if we have that conviction, then it must lead to blessing. Not remembering the God who instituted one day in seven. We give the thing too little honor. In service to God. We think, well, my church believes this, and so I'm going to go along. When I look at my calendar, 
I've got seven columns. And as far as I'm concerned, all seven columns are mine. If nothing comes up, that first column, it, we can assume I'm going to be doing the church thing. But if something better comes up, that first column is still mine. Rather than saying, you might as well take that first column off. That's, that's not my column. God chose that column. He set it aside. It is not mine to tamper with. And when we worship on the Lord's Day, this is, again, the Puritans would call it the market day of the soul. God has said, take a day and just devote it to worship. Now that doesn't mean you work yourself to death reading from every book you've got that you've not read all week. Rest your body, rest your soul, delight in the Lord. It is something God has given. It's a blessing and it should be viewed as such. Or your personal devotion time. You give it too much honor as if it were beneficial apart from God. I set aside 15 minutes. I read black ink on white paper. I muttered a few words with my eyes closed. I'm going to call that prayer. So I read my Bible and I prayed. And I just can't understand why my life is the way it is. Why I'm having so much trouble in this thing or that thing. Why, why my day is this way or that way. I mean, God, I read the Bible and I prayed. We think the thing in itself is somehow of any value. It's of no value apart from the God with whom we seek to commune. And at the same time, perhaps you give it too little honor. You don't realize when you sit down along with the Scriptures, you've got a copy of the Word of God, that God has commanded and invited you to meet with Him. When you read the words of Scripture, do you read them as God's words speaking to His people? When you pray, do you pray as true, honest fellowship and speaking to God? It's not to be given a place above God or, or special apart from God, but it's not to be reduced to just some routine. We could say tradition. And the Bible itself, just as a, a tool or a means of grace. Some people, you know, they treat the Bible as, as a sacred book, a holy book. You read the Bible, somehow that's enough. I read it. I like some of the stories in it. I feel pretty good about the Bible. I think it's a, a great thing. Apart from the God whose word is contained there, speaking through it, it's worthless. At the same time, perhaps you give it too little honor. Again, you don't realize when we read the Scriptures, we're hearing from the Word of God. Do you, do you think that? This is the We have to be aware of these things, consciously aware in our hearts and in our minds when I open the Scriptures, this is God's Word. But very often we don't. Everyday life as a believer, we just assume I'm a Christian here and that's just enough. There's a bunch of godless pagans around me and now there's a Christian here. And I just can't believe the things that happen here in the presence of a Christian. We think because we're there, we just show up that somehow God has to change our circumstances. At the same time, perhaps you give it too little honor. You don't realize God has called you out, saved you, and then sent you there on mission, on purpose. 
Your job there is to be a minister of reconciliation. And whatever else you do, wherever else you go, it all is subservient to make disciples of all of the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It all follows underneath that, and we don't think about that. This is one of the reasons I think we're so ineffective when, we, when we're around people is because we don't walk out the door as a minister of reconciliation. We don't get into our car on mission. We're not thinking all, all the time in all of our reactions, I am an ambassador. I've been sent with a job to do. The thing itself, apart from God, means nothing. But the thing in service to God, because God has ordained it, has mighty power. Family worships the same way. Some people just assume, boom, family worship. My kids are going to get saved. Just counting on the days for my kids to get saved because I done family worship. Apart from the God of the, that you worship, family worship is nothing. At the same time, don't give it too little honor. God's instituted it. God's commanded it. He, he longs to see fathers shepherding their families. And I believe when done properly with true communion and fellowship, we should expect God to bless that and pray for it. The thing in itself is useless. The thing in the service to God is has mighty power. When we fail to understand the relationship between God and His ordinances, we will fall into the sin of separating ordinances from God. And eventually, this is what we will do. We'll exalt the ordinances over God. We'll forget all about God. We're reformed. We've got the form. We've got the look. We've got the talk. Who needs Him? And I would ask the same question that our Lord asked. Which is greater? The ordinance or the God who has made the ordinance sacred? What about the Lord's table? This is something. When you talk to people, especially from our backgrounds, and you mention did you take the Lord's Supper every week? Or just bring up the idea. Many of us thought this. Just bring up the idea of the Lord's Supper every week. Well, I just, just feel like it would just sort of become a, just a tradition. Like singing and preaching and everything else that we do every week. Except we don't want to make that a tradition. It'll just become a tradition. It can just become a tradition. It can just be something we do. Is your heart in it? Peter says, in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Because Jesus said to. He told us to. To do it. As often as we do it, we proclaim His death until He comes. So we keep doing it until He comes. But when you do it, again, do you think, well, we do it every week. How often do y'all do the Lord's Supper? All once a quarter. (laughs) We do it every week. And you think that's somehow special. You've separated it from God. At the same time, we do it every week. We come to the Lord's table and dine with our Savior spiritually through a means of grace where we fellowship with Him. So when you eat the bread, you drink the cup, do you think, and remember, this is an ordinance that Christ gave to the church almost 2,000 years ago, and we've been doing it ever since. And He wants me, as I eat this bread, 
He wants me to remember his flesh, the flesh body that he took upon himself, having humbled himself, he took on the form of a servant, took on flesh, and then that flesh was beaten and mocked and the wrath of God was poured out on that flesh. And as I eat this bread, he wants me to remember and think and meditate upon what he has done for me. I drink the cup. The blood of Christ spilled. The symbol of his life being given for his people that we might live. Do you think about that when you're drinking the cup? This represents spiritual life, eternal life. What Christ has done to to wash our sins from us, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Do you think that? Do you feel that? Or do you just do it? See, the act itself... Apart from God is worthless. It's useless. People eat bread and drink juice all the time. They're, they're no better for it. The act in service to God, honoring Christ as holy, is a means of grace. God gives spiritual grace through it. He gives us what we need spiritually as we fellowship with Christ. So think on those things as the elements are passed and then we'll, uh, we'll come to the table.